I want to begin by sharing with you a parable written by a Danish philosopher by the name of Soren Kierkegaard. Uh, you, you may remember the name Kierkegaard from your college philosophy classes. He was one of the pioneers of what's called the existential movement and humanism. Well, Kierkegaard, what many people don't know, was also a strong churchman. He, he was a critic of the church, for sure, but Kierkegaard's heart was for the Lord and His people and the church. But he was frustrated in a very similar way to the way our brother James is frustrated. He would see that the church had grown into a, this huge global machine of, of orthodoxy, but there wasn't a vibrancy and a love for the gospel message and being what a Christian ought to be. And so he was a critic of it, as I said, and he wrote this parable called Duckland, and I want to read it to you this morning. Kierkegaard writes, it was, sun, it was a Sunday morning, and all the ducks dutifully came to church, waddling through the doors and down the aisle into their pews where they comfortably squatted. When all were well settled and the hymns were sung, the duck minister waddled up to his pulpit, opened the duck Bible, and read, Ducks, you have wings, and with wings you can fly like eagles. You can soar into the sky. Use your wings. It was a marvelous, elevating duck scripture, and thus all the ducks quacked their assent and gave hearty amens. And then they plopped down from their pews, and they waddled home. And Kierkegaard's point was that so often we have the tendency to hear marvelous, moving truths from God's Word and give hearty assent but it doesn't translate into the way we're actually going to live our lives. Just like these ducks who were told about their wings waddled in and waddled out. Kierkegaard and James says that shouldn't be the case for those who sit under the teaching of the Word of God. It is meant to transform us. Thinking that mere mental assent or just agreeing with what the Bible says is the same thing as living as God wants you to is not what it's about. That has James been James' argument for the last couple of weeks. As we saw last week, James has a passionate desire that we close the deadly gap from what we merely profess to what we mostly practice. Last week, verses 14 to 20, it was a look of, at what would be called the marks of a false faith, a dead faith. This morning, as we conclude chapter 2, it is a look at some examples of true faith, an actual living faith. Now, if you were here last week, you recall that James clearly made the assertion that a faith that was not accompanied by actions, transformed living, and by works is dead and useless, both for this life and the one to come. So, in our passage this morning, James is, is taking up his thesis again and providing evidence for the claim he makes. And the support he's going to use comes in the form of two short Old Testament biographies. And then James concludes with his point that faith without works is dead. The two biographies that James chooses to highlight are of the patriarch Abraham and the prostitute Rahab. Now, if you know anything of the two, James could not have picked two more different kinds of people as a comparison for this point. I mean, think about it. Abraham, on the one hand, a very moral man. Rahab, on the other hand, a very immoral woman. 
Abraham, he's the original Jew. He's the one that started it all. Rahab is just a typical Gentile. Abraham was wealthy. Rahab was impoverished. Abraham respected and admired. Rahab despised and rejected. What's amazing about these two is that though they are so radically different, they make the same point that James is getting at and that our Christian profession must show itself in transformed living. I find it so amazing, I say so often, that as a body of believers, we may have nothing in common at all, kind of like Abraham and Rahab, but that we have Christ and a saving understanding that we are sinners in greatly need of a great Savior. We have everything we need. I find it interesting that James uses two of the most polarized people you can imagine in society, but yet because they have the same saving faith, they are one and the same. As I was reviewing this passage this morning, that was just a testimony again to the, the, the inclusivity of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It doesn't matter if you're wealthy or poor, impoverished, educated or not, whatever you come from, we have a place in Christ because of what He's done. And so, James wisely and strategically chooses people on two sides of this spectrum to make his point. Now, last week, we concluded with verse 20. This week, we're beginning with verse 20. When James asks this kind of penetrating question, he says, do you want to be shown, you foolish person, you fools, that faith without works is useless? Admittedly, James is short on tact, but he is long on biblical perspective and there is a wordplay in verse 20 in the original language that I just want to tease out. It would have been very, it doesn't come out in English because it just would have been very awkward translating it from the original Greek into the, into the English translations. But I tried to take a stab at, I want to broadcast what James is trying to say. So verse 20 is this, Oh foolish man, do you not know that faith that does not work is a faith that does not work? Faith that does not work is a faith that does not work, a faith that is not revealing itself in corresponding actions and transformed living is a faith that is impotent to give you salvation. A faith that does not work is a faith that does not work. And to launch us off to prove his point that James is really building up to this point, he uses the example of Abraham the patriarch, and we see that in verse 21 and verse 23. He writes, was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the Scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness, and he was called the friend of God. The great reformer Martin Luther, it was just at this point that he felt that the epistle of James as he called it, was an epistle of straw. <clears throat> he did not think that this should be taught in the Protestant churches amongst the Reformation. You see, he was responding to the Catholic dogma of a salvation by works. Luther was correctly recognizing that we are not saved because we're morally good or we're morally deserving of it or we somehow built up our, 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 our salvation bank and when we show up to heaven, we can show Him all our good deeds. Luther believed and rediscovered that we are saved by faith 
through Christ in grace and no other works. And so strongly did he feel passionate about that, that anything that smacked of a kind of work salvation, he just really got his ire. And so this part of James is one passage like that. Luther, like so many other, misunderstood the relationship, at least initially, of what James was getting at to what Paul was teaching in the doctrine of justification by faith alone. And so that's why Luther had a problem with this. This is, seems contrary to Paul's emphasis that we're saved by faith and faith alone when James says you're justified by works. And so he called it a straw epistle and kind of bore the, or his ire at that point. But this is also why we as a congregation chose to study the book of James as a counterbalance to the book of Galatians. I don't know if you knew that. Because if you had joined our church while we were studying the book of Galatians, you might have gotten the impression that to be a Christian simply means to believe certain things and to adhere to a set of doctrine and that we're free in Christ and we cannot earn our salvation and so there's nothing we can contribute to it or it doesn't have to show in our lives, which would have been wrong. Likewise, if you've joined our church through our study of James, you might erroneously conclude that we believe that salvation is by works and you have to earn it and do all these things. That's wrong too. We felt even though both Galatians and James teaches the counterbalance, we wanted to bring them together because together they show the right relationship between faith and works in the Christian life. Now, without trying to oversimplify this issue, and if you've been a believer for a year or longer and you've been reading your Bible and paying attention, you should have seen this tension yourselves. Because Paul in Romans is very clear that we are saved by faith. And then when you read a guy like James, it's pretty obvious that we're supposed to be working as a result of our salvation. And so you might have felt that tension. Without wanting to oversimplify it, I do want to address that. See, James is not dealing with the means of our salvation at all, but rather with its outworking. He's not dealing with the means of salvation, but it's outworking in our lives, the evidence that it has genuinely occurred inside of us. And Jared taught you last week that James has established that the absence of good works proves that a profession of faith is meaningless. You see, James is emphasizing the corollary truth that genuine salvation which is always a work of, of God's free and gracious, merciful gift to us, being effective through our faith, will always and inevitably result in righteous kinds of actions in our lives. Now, some have imagined further that because of what James writes here in verses 21 to 23, that it's in contradiction to Paul's theology in Romans chapter 4, and they're to, at odds with one another. So what we're going to do is we're going to untangle this, and by doing that, friends, we're going to learn how to build our theology, right? That's what it is. We want to understand how God's Word works. So we're going to jump around a little bit. This is going to be a little workout for your soul, and you're going to like it. So keep your finger in the book of James. Go to the left to the book of Romans. We're going to look at Romans chapter 4. If you're new to your Bible, Romans is the sixth book in the New Testament. So just split it in the middle and go to the right a little bit. Romans chapter 4, 
This is what Paul writes regarding our justification, and he's talking about Abraham. He writes this, chapter 4, verse 1, "'What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness.'" So you say, wait a minute, that sounds almost in contradiction to what James says in James chapter 2, verse 21, was not Abraham our father justified by works? So you see there's a stark, or it seems to be an apparent contradiction between both of them. Paul is strongly implying Abraham was not justified by works, but James seems to be saying that exact thing. You see that there, but that is not the case. Remember, James has already clearly established that salvation is a free gift of God. Remember, chapter 1 of James, you can go back to James, chapter 1 of James, verses 17 and 18, James clearly makes this case. Every good gift and every perfect gift, including our salvation, is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. So we know right there that the Holy Spirit that inspired Paul in Romans 4 is not going to change or contradict himself when he inspires James writing chapter 2. There's no variation or shadow of change. Verse 18, here it is, of his own will, he brought us forth. How? By the word of truth that, should, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. So James has already made it very clear that salvation is a gift. God doesn't change His mind. This is the same gift that we receive from Him. We've been brought forth by the word of truth. Furthermore, both James in James chapter 2 and Paul in Romans chapter 4 are quoting the same verse in Genesis 15 talking about Abraham, Genesis 15, 6 talks about Abraham believing God, and therefore it was a credit to him as righteousness. So we ask, what exactly is going on here then? Do we have a contradiction or don't we? And if not, how do we reconcile these two? In order to do that, it's helpful to remember that Paul, talking about justification by faith, is what he's talking about in Romans 4, pertains to our standing before God and James, talking about our, our justification by works, pertains to our standing before a watching world, before men. In other words, what Paul is talking about when he's talking about this amazing gift of justification by faith in Romans 4 is, is talking about what's called a legal or forensic kind of establishing that we are made right with God. If I can use a $10 word here, it's an ontological reality. Your very being, your essence is made right with God by faith and no other means. But when James is talking about a justification by works in James chapter 2, what he's referring to is the evidential reality of this reality that you've been made right with God by faith. It is now showing in your life your works justify that this actually took place. So if Romans 4 is the ontological, your being, the reality, James 2, you might say, is the existential result, that you've actually been changed and now it's showing evidence in your life. 
So you're justified by faith standing before God, but you're justified to a watching world as seen through the works that as a result of you being transformed and forgiven by God. So they're talking about this in two very different senses. Furthermore, when you think about it, Paul strongly talks about this relationship of faith and works. So you don't have to flip there. We'll have it on the screen. Ephesians 2.10 and particularly Galatians 5.6. So you remember when I first got here two years ago, we talked about Ephesians. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus. Why? For good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And in our study of Galatians, Paul writes in Galatians 5, look, it's not about being circumcised. It's not about being uncircumcised. It's not about the external trappings of religious obligation. What matters is faith working through love. So there's no contradiction in Paul's mind that our faith has to transform us, and we were actually created to do some kind of work. And so James wants to give us the first case study, and that first case study is this patriarch Abraham. I want you to see this, so keep your finger in James. Let's jump to the very first book of the Bible, Genesis 22. Genesis chapter 22. This is years after uh, Abraham was, uh, had righteousness accredited to him because of his belief. That happened in Galatians, or excuse me, Genesis 15. Years have taken place. Here we are now at Genesis chapter 22. God's promises in part are coming real to Abraham. He's got his son Isaac. And look what God asks of Abraham, Genesis 22 verse 1. After these things, God tested Abraham. By the word, by the way, What's one of the prominent words we've been hearing through the book of James? Test, right? It's the same word, different language, but in, in, in the Greek, it is the same kind of word. So God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and Abraham said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. Skip down to verse 9, towards the end of the middle of the chapter. When they came to the place of which God had told them, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order to bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. Now, on a number of levels, this is a shocking passage for any of us, our modern ears to hear. Um, this is just outstanding for, for, for a number of reasons. Number one, um, we don't have any concept of sacrifice in our culture that's, uh, that's close to this. And even if we did, to be asked to sacrifice your son is shocking at any level, regardless of culture or time. I just want to acknowledge the fact that while Abraham had a category of sacrifice, it would have never included his own dear son and how sick he must have felt. How confused it must have been, he must have been, yet look at verse 3, he obeyed. So Abraham rose early in the morning. I, I don't think he ever fell asleep. He probably was up all night. Saddled his donkey and took two of his young men, his, other, his servants with him, and his son Isaac. Now keep in mind, did, did you note the amount of familial love that Moses writes in this, in this verse? when he's talking about Isaac in verse 2, your son, your only son, the one you love, Isaac, 
it's very clear that Isaac is of importance. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. How could Abraham do this? Somehow, Abraham must have known. Abraham must have believed that God would work this out. His faith was being tested through a a mark of obedience he had never anticipated would ever come his way. How could Abraham do this? He must believe somehow God's going to intervene. God would not allow this to happen to me. I think that's what he did because look at verses 4 and 5 of Genesis 22. And on the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young servants, Stay here with the donkey, and I and the boy will go over there and worship and come back to you again. You see, Abraham was confident that he and Isaac would return. Now, if you're going to be honest, you might just say, well, what else was Abraham supposed to tell his servants? Yeah, me and Isaac are going to go over there, and then I'm going to kill him, and I'll come back. I mean, that just wouldn't have worked. So, of course, he told his servants, we're going to go worship, and then we're going to come back. But is that exactly what happened? We're cynical. We could look at it that way, but here's where, friends, Scripture, interpreting Scripture is so important. Scripture interprets Scripture. What was going on in Abraham? How could he do this? Well, Hebrews chapter 11, 17 and 19 tells us. It's going to be on the screens behind me. It says this, by faith, Abraham, when he was tested, again, the same word, his faith was being tested to see if it would reveal in works to prove whether or not the justification of of his character was real, he offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises, speaking of Abraham, was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. You imagine being Abraham walking up that hill with your dutiful son, your beloved son, the heir of your name, the promises given to Abraham that through this boy the nation would be made and that all the world would be blessed would come through Isaac, and now he's being asked to give him up to slaughter his own son. How does that jive? It does not make sense. And yet, Hebrews tells us Abraham reasoned and considered. It's the Greek word legizomai, where we get uh, words like doctrine and and theology. It it talks about calculating and weighing in the balances. So he's walking up there. He's remembering probably God's promises in uh, Genesis 15 and, and Genesis 17. He's remembering the good character of God in Genesis 18. He's remembering all that God had done in his own life and realizing that even if God asked something hard of me, somehow he's going to pull through this. Even if that means my son must perish, God will raise him from the dead. God would make things work out, even if the circumstances seem crazy. And I can't help but wonder, friends, what difficult thing is God asking of you to do? Uh, He's not going to ask you to give up your son, right? This is a unique event in redemptive history. That's never going to be the case. But He's going to ask you. He's going to ask you to do hard things. 
Maybe it's you're going to have to give up a dream or a hope that you've nurtured that just isn't part of his plan. You're going to have to walk away from a relationship that is just not godly or edifying or building you up. You're going to have to deny a sin that you've taken pleasure and comfort from. You're going to have to give up living the way you want to for the higher calling He's put on your life. But what hard thing is God calling you to do? More importantly, friends, do you have the biblical resources in your life to draw from to help you make sense of it all? Because when God asks His people to do hard things, it's going to require hard times from His people. It means knowing His promises, knowing His character, remembering His work. Because this world, if it's not a test from God, it will be a temptation from this world. That's what James has been teaching us. And when those difficulties, when those tests and temptations come in, do you have the resources to get through? Do you have those resources, or is your faith built on just what you're hearing on Sunday mornings occasionally and maybe a podcast or two, but nothing more? We have to understand God's promises, His character, His works, His wonder, and all that He's doing. You imagine the emotion in Abraham. Friends, this, this is just not stoic literature. This happened. This is a father asked to sacrifice his son as a, as a mark of his evidence that he has been in relationship with the one true God. Imagine the emotion that was there. And James says in verse 22, and the Scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and was counted to him as righteousness. Excuse me, I read verse 23. Verse 22, you see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. Is your faith complete? Is it complete? Because according to James, according to the Holy Spirit, your faith is complete when there's works to it. And, and, and not necessarily kind of the external trappings of what we might consider religious works, like attending church or, or tithing or even partaking of communion. Let's keep it in the context. Is your faith completed by works that James is talking about compassion for the oppressed and the marginalized? treating people that you may have nothing in common with, but adopting them into the family because that's what God did to you. Uh, uh, Paul, in Galatians chapter 5, are you bearing the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, long-suffering, self-control? Or, or in the book of Ephesians, are you bearing the root fruit that Paul talks about there, showing solidarity with the body of Christ? E even if you feel weird around these people and have nothing in common, you recognize we share in common the most important thing. You recognize you're a sinner like me, and you recognize He's the Savior, and we're running to Him, and there's a solidarity there. Is your faith complete like Abraham's? Abraham, in other words, was justified by faith, Genesis 15, Romans 4, and it resulted in his justification by works, Genesis 22, James 2. See, Paul had been arguing for the priority of faith before becoming a Christian, James is arguing for the proof of faith after you've become a Christian. And so he uses Abraham. Now, his readers might have said, yeah, fine, okay, sure, use Abraham, the Jew, like the patriarch. We call him patriarch for a reason. But hey, that's not the real world. It's not where we live. So James, in, in great wisdom, says, okay, patriarch, too high and lofty an ideal. Maybe you can't see being like Abraham, 
How about being a, like a prostitute? Can you relate to a prostitute then? You see, James deliberately uses the extremes, a patriarch on one hand, a prostitute on the other hand, knowing that most of the people are going to fall somewhere in between. You've got to be somewhere in that spectrum. If you're not like this high and lofty patriarch, maybe you're closer to being what a prostitute is. Doesn't matter because guess what? I've got this great example of a prostitute who exercised the kind of realization when she knew who God was of saving faith, and that's what he looks to next, verse 25. And in the same way, notice that phrase, and in the same way as Abraham, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? And, and, you know, if you don't know the story of Rahab, write down Joshua chapter 2, verses 1 through 14. You have where uh, Joshua and the children of Israel are about to go into the promised land, and, and Joshua sends out spies. They go to the city of Jericho, a fortified ancient city that had been inhabited for centuries, even before the narrative in Joshua 2. And this prostitute hears about the living God, what he's doing. She's terrified. She doesn't know. She, she hides them. The king of Jericho says, I know those men came to you. Give them up. And she lied to him and said, no, they, they, they came here, yes, but I sent them away another direction. Go find them. And she turns to the spies, and she listens to what they have to say and says, look, I've heard about your God. We know what is happening, and our hearts are melting within us. Would you remember me when you come through? And the spies said, our life for your life. We will deal kindly and faithfully with you as you have done for us. And she put her, her life and the life of her family on the line. And when the children of Israel came through, Rahab and her household were spared. And she became great, 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 somewhere along the line, the great-grandmother of Jesus Christ himself. So you have both Rahab and Abraham in the lineage of Jesus. She is actually an even more relevant example for us than maybe even Abraham was living in a very pagan culture where the, the notion of God was either mocked or dismissed, and her allegiance to God would have certainly lead to her own ridicule at the very least or ostracization at the worst. And she put it all on the line, very similar to what we're called to do today. And yet she is a picture not only of genuine saving faith, but this ongoing fruit of faith. Look at this, for example, if you read Joshua 2, she hears of the works of the one true God, and when she hears of that, she also becomes disillusioned with the culture around her, and it sees its moral anarchy and decay, and she fears the one true God's judgment and holiness. Friends, we need to be preaching that as well preaching it with compassion and love, but not shy away that God is a just and loving God, but because of that, judgment's coming. Number four, she's convicted by the testimony of these Hebrew spies, and then number five, she commits to this God and His people, right? It's not just me and Jesus at Starbucks. It's me and Jesus and all of the rest, and she bears fruit, evidence by she's putting it on the line imagine what would have happened to her if the king found out she lied and her family? Can you imagine if these Hebrew spies lacked fealty and forgot about her, but she trusted God? And as a matter of fact, she, as I said, is a picture of salvation and bearing fruit of faith. 
You know, we often refer to uh, Hebrews 11, I quoted that passage a little while ago, as the um, hall of faith, but when you think about it, it's also a hall of works, isn't it? And notice all the prepositions by faith are followed with some kind of verb of action. By faith, Abel offered to God a better sacrifice. By faith, Noah built an ark to save his family, verse 7. By faith, Isaac blessed Jacob instead of Esau, verse 20. By faith, Joseph spoke the Word of God, verse 22. By faith, Moses' parents hid Moses at the risk of their own lives. By faith, Moses chose to be mistreated along with the people of God. By faith, the people passed through the Red Sea as on dry land. Faith and works always go together. They fit together hand in glove. Living faith is revealed through living works. So Kierkegaard said those poor ducks waddled in and out of church and never flew like they were intended to do because their faith was mere mental assent. Friends, before you leave here today, before the day is over, please ask yourself, what is your faith? Is it mere mental assent, or does it bear fruit? Here's two practical questions. Are you learning to love God's glory more, or are you still concerned about your glory and what people think of you and what people will make of you? And secondly, are you learning to love God's people more, or are you more in love with your convenience? There are many other questions you could ask, but start there. Do you love God's glory more today than you did last year at this time? Do you love God's people more today than last year at this time? Or do you love your own glory and your own convenience? There are a few things uh, as funny as watching ducks waddle. A few things as funny and, quite frankly, as cute. You know, their little bodies kind of doing that thing. Um, But there are a few things as majestic as seeing birds soar in the air. And they they never do it with one wing, do they? They're never like, woo, check this out. They need both, both wings to give them the lift they need to take off. In the same way, we both need faith and works. It's not one or the other. We can't just be concerned about social justice as if doctrine and what we believe doesn't matter. We can't just be all about our truths and traditions as if the way we're living and impacting the world doesn't matter. We need both faith and works. Let me put a twist on James's words. I'll put it in the positive. Uh, he says, if a faith that does not work is a faith that does not work, then a faith that works is a faith that works. Bottom line, a faith that works it's going to be a faith that works. And what a great day to end, or way to end our service today, than to have the Lord's Supper. Um, because part of the Lord's Supper is a time of reflection, isn't it? How are we living? Uh, the, the, when we take the Lord's Supper, we have to be reflecting on how is my life living? And, and you know, as a matter of fact, There's four components to the Lord's Supper. Let me just briefly give them to you. You can write them down if you want. But number one, we should be reflecting, how am I living? Whether it's the faith and works issue or or some other, a myriad of things the Bible commands of us, how am I matching up to that, right? So it's a reflection. It's time of repentance, depending upon how you've reflected. I need to repent of these things. If I'm not loving His glory more or loving people more, I need to repent somehow. And it's not just a vertical repentance, it's horizontal. If there's relationships that are fragmenting, you you can't partake of this and say we're one and not be one. 
So it's repentance. It's a reflection. There's a repentance. And then thirdly, there's a resolution. I need to start walking differently, right? Paul says, walk worthily. There's a difference. There's got to be a resolve that I'm no longer going to be doing this, but by God's grace, be enabled to walk differently. So we reflect, we repent, and we resolve, and finally we rejoice. Because when we do this, as Jesus said in the Gospels, He's coming again. And we're reminding ourselves that we are not sustained by the things of this world, but we're sustained by the life and the death of Jesus Christ as symbolized by the bread and the cup. That's our source of life. He's coming again. And so as we gather together, um, take some time. Don't feel you need to rush up here. I know you see the crowds come down. You feel like, I got to get up there. Take your time. We're going to have three stations. Reflect, repent, resolve, rejoice. Make it mean something because it does. So if I can have those of us who are going to serve us the Lord's Supper, please come down and let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for this time. Your word is so rich, God, and we all stand convicted of it. But Lord, we know we don't just stay in a place of conviction, we also stay in a place of justification because of what Christ did. We know we cannot love you nor our neighbor the way we should, but Christ did. But that does not give us license not to pursue holiness, not to supply what is lacking in our faith. That encourages us, Father. So we pray that as we continue to celebrate these elements, as we worship together, you would continue the work of transforming us. Make us a radically countercultural people. Make us a peculiar people. Help us to not care about reputation and what people think. Help us to care about being faithful to you and making much of the name of Christ. We'll thank you for it in his name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this message from Christ Community Church of Laguna Hills. For more information and resources from Christ Community, visit us at www.ccclh.org.